Is this better? <gasps> Ooh. All right. That's nice. All right. So, Pastor Kevin is not here, and I, I figure I should probably get out in front of this before any more rumors start, but uh, he's preaching at another church. I know. I know. Uh, so, anyway, he will be back next week. He is doing a favor for another local pastor. Uh, but I have a question for you. Have you ever loved something so much that you couldn't bring yourself to use it? Right? So just this week, uh, someone gave my son a Red Rider BB gun. And for those of you trying to think back in your memories, no eye patch was worn today. Both eyes are perfectly fine. Uh, the issue was it didn't come with any BBs, right? So you've got this gun, no BBs, no worries, right? I was once a child myself, once. Uh, and so I went back through some of my old boxes, no problem, found some BBs, right? But it's not all I found, right? I also found two boxes of these Shatter Blast targets, right? They are so cool. It's use them and lose them, right? They are so cool. At least that's what I thought as a child, right? Just awesome. But I, I actually never used them. Like, I thought they were so cool, and I really, really wanted to wait for that perfect moment. But it never came. There was no perfect moment, and eventually they were forgotten. Right? Perhaps you've wanted to save something for the perfect moment. Uh, maybe it's a favorite food, and it just kind of sits in the pantry until it goes stale. Um, maybe for some of the gaming youth out there, I'm sure none of these youth do any gaming, but for those of them that do, perhaps there's a, a piece of gear that they had, and they just like, really wanted to save this gear for that perfect moment, but then the game is over, and it's still sitting there in the inventory, never used. Or maybe you've been telling yourself that when you, when you have enough money or have enough time, you're going to do something special. But no matter how much time or money you have, it just never seems to be enough. We can be like that with what God has blessed us with as well. We can hold on to it, waiting for that perfect moment to have more or to know more. But if we don't take advantage of what God has given us, then we're in danger of suffering from a spiritual malnutrition. We need to use our blessings. We need to use the things that God has given us. We need to take advantage of the storehouse of spiritual nourishment that is before us. The book of Ephesians is going to help a lot with that. Um, it is a beautiful letter. Uh, it teaches us about the riches, the inheritance, and the fulfillment that we have in Christ and in his church. It tells us things we possess as believers, how to enjoy them. The first three chapters are going to reveal this to us. They are spiritual riches, spiritual blessings, and spiritual possessions that we have in Christ. The second half will be teaching us what our response ought to be in light of that. So you could say, the first half is the indicatives, the things that are true, and the second half is the imperatives, the things we ought to do. So, a little bit about Paul, who is the author of the book of Ephesians. From the book of Acts, we know that Paul spent several years ministering to the Ephesians, uh, predominantly to the Gentiles uh, or those of non-Jewish heritage. It is believed that he wrote the letter to the Ephesians during his first imprisonment in Rome, which was around 60 AD. During this time, he was under house arrest, and it, it might be a little different than what we'd think of as house arrest here. So essentially, he had a Roman guard that was assigned to him 24-7. 
Uh, and that guard's job was to make sure that Paul stayed within a certain vicinity so that when it was his time to appear before Caesar, that guard could quickly get Paul there. So this did allow him some freedom of mobility in a, in a short distance. It also allowed him to have visitors and to teach the gospel. Ephesus itself was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, it's located on what is today the coast of modern-day Turkey. At that time, it was one of the most populous cities in the world. And everything in that culture pointed them into worshiping Greco-Roman gods, especially Artemis, which was goddess of the hunt and fertility. In fact, the making of her idols was big business. Right? They would make them, they would sell them, and it was a big business in Ephesus. And Paul comes in preaching, hey, there's only one God, and he can't be made by human hands. And this was a huge conflict for him uh, and some of the people of that area. So today, we are beginning this series in Ephesus, looking at the first two verses in Ephesians chapter 1. And it may not seem like there's a whole lot in that, but I hope as you follow along, you'll see how much there really is. So open your copy of scripture that you have today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And right from the start, Paul is setting a foundation for his authority to write this letter. It's one thing to get people to read a letter, but it's another thing to get them to truly take it to heart and to apply it to their lives. So the first thing he states is that he is apostle of Christ Jesus. So really, why does this matter? And, and what did it take to become an apostle? The requirements to become an apostle are three. To have personally seen and heard Christ, to have witnessed his resurrection and ascension, and finally, to be handpicked by Jesus. And, and let's not miss that last one. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. To be handpicked by Jesus is no small matter. Paul became an apostle in quite a unique way in that it was after Christ's death and resurrection. So as such, he was also the last apostle. The second thing that Paul states is that it was by God's will. His position, his purpose, it was not chosen and it was not earned. And some people tend to think that perhaps only pastors or missionaries are who they are by the will of God, right? That somehow everyone else isn't really following what God's will is unless somehow that is what they end up with. But everyone is called by God to do something. So if what you're doing is what God has called you to do, then your calling is just as valid and just as important as any other. So Paul said, Paul, an apostle by God's will. But one could also say, I'm a teacher by God's will. I'm a homemaker by God's will. I'm an artist. I'm a landscaper. If it is by the will of God, then what you're doing matters. And all jobs and positions right, that you're doing by the will of God is what God wants you to do. 
what Paul is actually doing here is not saying that it is the apostleship that his life is based on. What he's giving you is demonstrating where he finds his identity, right? It is not the doing of something that we find our identity, but the fact that what we're doing is following the will of God. I'm gonna say that again. It's important to know that it's not the doing of something that we find our identity, but the fact that what we're doing is following the will of God. Our identity and the way we perceive ourselves ought to be based on who Christ is and who we are in Christ. It's not something that we create for ourselves and certainly shouldn't be something that we allow others to create for us. If my identity is based upon my circumstances, what I can do or what I have or who I know, then where does that leave me if or when any of these things change? It is our natural instinct, right? So imagine uh, you know, we're having a conversation, right? Hey, how's it going? Tell me about yourself. Most likely, you're probably gonna tell me something about, hey, this is what I do for work, these are my hobbies, here, let me tell you about my family. And, and none of these things are bad. So don't get me wrong that, that we should not uh, enjoy these things in our life, and they, they are very important, but they should not be the core of who we are. It should not be what we are as we move forward in life. It is a part of our life, but not who we are. Our lives and our identity must be rooted in Christ because Christ is unchanging. Unlike everything else in this world and everything else in your life, Christ is always the same. Even our ability to follow God comes from being rooted in Christ. And that root is both how we find our identity and where we receive our blessings. But we will talk about blessings a little bit later. Paul then moves on and he addresses the recipients. So the recipients of this letter, he addresses as saints. And in the New Testament, all Christians, all people who put their faith in Christ are referred to as saints, holy ones, people that are set apart by God and for God. He's not writing to just a few of the spiritual elites in the congregation of Ephesus. But why do we call them saints? Why did he call them saints? Would it not have been just as easy to call them sinners? When they became a Christian, did they suddenly stop sinning? Do any of you? I mean, everyone throughout history, this is the one common thread that we all sin and fall short. So it would have been very easy for him to do that. In fact, some may wonder, could there be saints today? Like, are, are any of us really valid enough to be called saints, right? Our culture is dominated by materialism, right? So how many people can misplace their priorities, even Christians, about their work, time, money, family? Can parents not at time hold hidden resentment to their children for taking up so much of their time and energy? In a culture that glorifies beauty and portrays people as objects for our pleasure, how can even those whose marriages are healthy and whose morals are right not at times be tainted by that impurity? In a religious culture that worships numbers and congregation size, is there any who are not guilty of measuring success by human standards and envious of those who potentially have more than we do? 
in a political culture, convinced that human power is the path to glory? Have any escaped the hubris of putting too much of their hope in the efforts of human power? My point is that none are untouched by sin. We all fall. There is a balance. There's a balance to how we see ourselves, right? Should we see ourselves as sinners in need of constant grace and mercy by God? Yes, absolutely. But even above and beyond that, we need to see who we are in Christ. And who we are in Christ is now a saint. And I believe that when you see yourself as that, as saints, you will begin to act like it. And this is the mystery being unpacked throughout the book of Ephesians. It is how Jesus is destroying the reign of sin in both our lives and in the church. We are saints because we belong to God. Once we have put our faith in Christ, sin will never overcome us. Picture this. Imagine you are holding hands with the Father, but it is his strength that holds you and not your own. In the same way, if you could picture holding hands with a small child in the parking lot, let's say, and as much as they pull and try to be free, right, it is your strength and your love that holds them and keeps them safe, not their own, right? It, it, it is the love for the child that the father then holds on tight. And so it is with our heavenly father and us. As much as we're holding on to him, so much more he is holding on to us. The next thing we see is that Paul's writing to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, not only are you saints because you believed in Jesus Christ, but even better, you are faithful saints. And that's not easy. That takes something extra, right? Becoming a faithful saint is not something that just happens. It's not something that you have because you come to church on Sundays, right? It takes discipline and it takes action. So what are some of the things that we can do to apply this? Ephesians is gonna go into this in, in great detail, but a couple of things that, that I can point out is that you first need to know who you are in Christ, right? If you don't know who you are in Christ, then what you're going to do with that really has no bearing yet. So the first thing is knowing who you are in Christ, right? And how are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to know who we are in Christ? you're going to need to read, to study, and to apply God's word in your life. If you find your identity in Christ, you ought to be faithful in prayer, in witnessing to others, telling others of this great love you have and the great love that is had for you, and trying to live a holy life, all of which is demonstrating your identity in Christ. Becoming a saint is easy. All you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, right? Becoming a faithful saint is a journey, right? It is potentially the most challenging, but also the most rewarding, enjoyable, and exciting thing you will ever do in this life. Whether we are faithful or stumbling, to those that are in Christ, those being held by the Father, nothing will ever break that connection. 
that is the root of our identity. That is our foundation. We are not defined by our mistakes, by our weaknesses, or even our strengths, but by his love and his grace. Let's talk about grace. So we know now who is writing. We know to whom it's being written. We know by what authority it's being written. But now there's more, there are the two blessings in the greeting. The first blessing we see is grace. But what is grace really? Right? What made Paul so excited about grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is a blessing from God poured out on those who do not deserve it. One way to remember grace, and if uh, you've been in church, I'm sure some of you have seen this acrostic before, but God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. The important thing to know is that grace does not cost us anything. True grace, right? But there's no such thing as cheap grace. Genuine grace is always free for the one who receives it, but costly for the one who gives it. Grace is free for humans, but expensive for God. It is free for us, but it costs God his son. So what would grace look like between you and I, let's say? All right, so how about, uh, how about you're, you're gonna borrow my van, okay? But somehow you wreck it, as we all knew you would, right? <laughs> Just, ah. All right, so you apologize. That's fine, you apologize. I accept. Is the van fixed? No, it's still very broken, right? It's your fault, you know? What are you gonna do about it, right? In grace, I fix it. If I'm going to extend grace to you, I fix it, right? So grace is not me accepting your apology and now forcing you to make it right. Like, yeah, yeah, thanks for apologizing. Now, come on, get this done, right? It's also not expecting you to fix it and then come apologize, right? You just go ahead and fix that, bring it in. Uh, maybe no one will ever even know, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe it'll just be forgotten and no one will even realize it ever happened right? No, for it to be grace, I have to accept and make it right myself. And so it is with our sin. There is always a price to be paid. We have sinned against God. The cost is death and separation from God. He is holy and without sin. Jesus offered to cover that cost. In fact, it's already been paid. All we have to do is accept it. God is not looking for you to put your life together or make it right before you come to him. I'm going to say that again. God is not looking for you to put your life together or to make it right before you come to him. And you cannot hide your wreck. The greatest testament of grace in Paul's life is his own conversion. Some may find it hard to believe that he was not seeking God, right? We're thinking, Paul, if you know about Paul, how much he sacrificed to, to push forward the gospel, how many letters he's written, how, how big he was in his faith. And it's like, certainly this man, this man was obviously seeking God, right? No, no, in fact, it was the opposite. 
right? It was, it was way worse, right? He was actually persecuting. He was trying to hunt down and kill those who followed Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to Paul, who was known as Saul at that time, despite Saul's best effort to resist, right? He did not receive God's grace because of his own merit, right? Paul received it as a gift, just like any of us. Life can be different. Change is possible for those who see themselves as who they truly are and put their faith in Christ Jesus. Life can be different and change is possible for those who see themselves as who they truly are and put their faith in Christ. The second blessing we have is peace. Because when we put our faith in Jesus, in the effectiveness, in the completeness of God's forgiveness, that gives us peace. We are not naturally at peace with God. When we want the things that are contrary to God's will, when we want things that are not righteous, when we delight in evil, when we resent the things that are good, all of this puts us at conflict with God. It's true of our lives, it's true of everyone's life throughout history, right? So I wanna be clear that this peace, this is not something that we find in our own strength. It's not like we wake up one day and said, you know what, today I'm gonna love the things God loves, I'm gonna hate the things God hates, right? It's, it's not within us, it is instead because of his grace and his mercy on us that we can have access to this. This is also not a peace that's simply absent of conflict. Right? It's one that is active in its renewal and regeneration. It is one that is making us whole daily. Once we have a vertical peace with God, that allows us to extend horizontally peace with others. It takes a, a joint sober assessment in humility of who we are outside of Christ, but then also who we are because we're in Christ as saints. It's this type of peace that gives us the ability to follow Christ's example, to love and serve others. But it is because of grace that we can have this peace. Peace with God, peace within ourselves, and peace with others. Grace is that fountain from which the river of peace flows. And it sounds great, maybe even sounds easy, I don't know. But have you ever felt the challenges we face might just be too great to expect change? Maybe in your life, maybe in, in someone else's. Maybe there are some here or those you know that despite growing up in the church, they're hardened to the gospel they're in bondage to their culture. Others may be experiencing problems so complex, prolonged, or evil that they don't know what could possibly be done or said that could help. It's, it's also possible that maybe you are in an environment where the culture, uh, the current popular values are, are just, they're not even given a second thought. They're unquestioned and it can make a Christian's witness seem antiquated or even bigoted. So if the problems are so great, 
our culture so opposed to God. Those within the church, weak and human. What basis is there for us to expect that any change is truly possible? How then can we have peace? If we don't see God as our foundation and the root, then we truly are hopeless. What God did for Paul can happen for others. It was God who overcame Paul's sin, his anger, his murder, his war against the faith. If God can do that, then we can have peace knowing that God can solve anything in this life. Whether it's the product of our culture or perhaps our own weakness, God's work is not dependent on human strength. He does not work dependent upon our strength. Our human weakness is not the end of the story. God is at work, and so we can have peace going forward. These blessings, they have a source. Grace and peace come from Christ. They come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered what those three words are for? Like why, why do we say it in three, Lord Jesus Christ? The first right, is a title, Lord, like, like king or president. Jesus is his name. And Christ tells us why he came. He came to be the Messiah, to be the savior of the world. It's interesting to note that these two sources of Christian blessings are also the sources for Paul's authority. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our blessings come from God and Jesus Christ. Another set of bookends is his addressing to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, giving them both a physical location as well as a spiritual location. The bottom line today is this. If our identity is in Jesus, then his grace will be the foundation of our peace. If our identity is in Jesus, his grace is the foundation for our peace. Remember, our identity is who we are because of God's will. It is not something that is created because of what you can do or what you have. Your identity should be in Christ and what he has done for you and who you are as a child of God. If you have that as your identity, if you have his grace that he puts upon your life, that is the only way we will ever truly have peace in this life. Let's pray. Dear God, I just wanna thank you for your grace. I wanna thank you for sending your son who came here and he died for all of us. God, please help us to live lives that are worthy of being called saints. God, we rest in you in all things. You are the foundation for our peace. And God, I pray that you would be with all of us as we go throughout this week. You would be our identity, our foundation. We thank you for your grace. And we live in your peace. Amen.